1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone,
1: and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I will be talking to Jamil Pinheiro Diaz and Alex Brostov for the translators of Alton Krenak's Life is Not Useful. This beautiful book was published in 2023 by Polity. Hi, both. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Takeshi.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I came across with this book through my friends in Brazil. Uh, We are planning on coming up with the research projects on how to decolonize philosophy in the UK academia, uh, which is basically an impossible project. And among the list of books they recommended, um, this book was actually included in that list. And the moment I opened the book, I just realized that this is just going to blow me away. Um, so I really want to talk many things about this p- beautiful book, uh, before getting carried away. Um, actually I would like to ask you about who you are and you know, what you do as a researcher and also what you're interested in, in terms of these research and how this book project came to be, um.
2: Uh, Okay, so my name is Jamile Pinheiro Diaz. I originally come from Brazil, uh, from the Brazilian Amazon, from a city called Belém, and I have lived and worked in different places, um, and uh, I've always been interested in doing intercultural work, transnational work, building connections, and I've always been attracted to uh, the craft of translation. Uh, So I've been translating books and essays uh, for about a decade now, uh, especially in the social sciences and humanities. And I usually translate works that uh, have to do with indigenous studies and gender and sexuality. So uh, I translate both from Portuguese to English and uh, English and French to Portuguese. And in addition to that, I'm also an academic. Uh, I'm currently working as director of the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the University of London. And my research interests cover Amazonian cultural production, indigenous conceptual frameworks and arts, and translation studies. And the, the way I became involved with the translation of Life is Not Useful was actually through Alex, because uh, Alex was initially invited and then they contacted me uh, asking whether I would be interested in co-translating with them. And we, we were uh, colleagues uh, at, uh, uh, well, uh, Alex was taking uh, auditing uh, or taking a course at, at Stanford Right, uh, that was in Brazilian literature with our dear friend Marília Librandi. and we became friends, and that was in 2015, and we have kept in touch since then. Uh, well, life is not useful as part of uh, a series that's called Critical South, and, uh, and one of the editors who is a colleague of ours, uh, her name is Natalia Bresuela, uh, who uh, wrote this uh, gorgeous introduction to the book is also someone that we are in conversation with. And uh, so this is part of uh, a network of dialogue and interlocution that also has to do with uh, uh, UC Berkeley and the fact that Alex went there. So yeah. Uh, And yeah, I, I like to think of this project and of my involvement with translation more broadly as a way to change the curriculum, to expand what counts as critical thinking. And I think that's a very
0: important uh, work that we can contribute to.
1: Fantastic. Alex, please.
0: Absolutely. So I'm going to echo some of the things Shamili said, but I'll try and sprinkle in more details. Um, So I'm Alex Brostoff, um, and I'm currently assistant professor of English at Kenyon College. But like Shamili mentioned, um, I got my PhD at UC Berkeley, and I'm trained in comparative literature. Um, So my work is like highly comparative and transnational. Um, I work predominantly in literary and critical theory, as well as queer and trans-feminist cultural production um, across the hemispheric Americas. Um, So much of the work I do is in contemporary experimental writing and auto-theoretical writing in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, And during my time as a graduate student, um, I started translating for a number of different venues from both Spanish um, and Portuguese, um, including for Critical Times, um, which is a journal um, that's based through the International Consortium in Critical Theory. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to do a short piece uh, by Ayotun Krenak then. I believe this was, let's see, I translated On Time in 2020. Um, so this this was based on a talk he gave um, in Sao Paulo with the International Theater Exhibition. And um, when I was, you know struggling with a few phrases here and there, the person of, I turned to, of course, my most trusted translation mentor was, of course, Neely. Um, so we had, we had already had some experience kind of collaborating with Ayultan's work from this other piece I had done. And when Polity Press um, approached me to do Life is Not Useful, Um, I asked them if I could take on a co-translator because we had been talking for years about wanting to co-translate together and wanting to do projects together. And this was, you know, absolutely the perfect opportunity. And of course, you know, Ailton's work, I think, is far more tied to your areas of specialization and expertise than mine. Um, But I think we share a Passion for the language and for the content and for the politics. Um, and I think, you know, just to echo some of what Jamili said, um, part of my work as a translator, um, you know, comes from being a scholar activist and wanting to build, you know, wanting to build networks and coalitions across borders um, and to think together um, about what constitutes a more just future.
1: This is how this sort of like, almost like th- this book feels, you know, poetic performance, theoretical performance is a very performance-oriented uh, intellectual work. Um, and I can see that the co-translation is a very good way to collaboratively approach this um, text. And I have a problem with this term, right? That, that the introduction immediately starts with this sort of assumptions about oral traditions that precede the textual traditions and how the textual traditions has a tendency to privilege itself over the oral tradition. And I think indigenous philosophy in general, and I'm just kind of jumping straight into this core problem of translation, um, that we don't want to make the text stand itself and then kind of do its own work um, you know, in, in the context of philosophy, once you're written down, it's no longer you have a control over the text and it just sort of starts spread. How do you, did you have any struggle with this process of translation where Alton's position seem to be more performative? Like we should be actually having conversations, right? That, that, it, it's very antithetical to academic um, translations, studies and trans, uh, publications so did you have any uh, conflict between Aylton's talk as art and then presentation of it in Western publication format? Maybe this is like zero to hundred miles, but do you have any thoughts on this, the process of translation?
0: Well, maybe we can start by offering a little bit of context about how, how the book came to be. because be great, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think your question is a good one, because it. we've been having conversations amongst ourselves and with polity about genre, in fact, um, because there's a question of, you know, like, is, is this, you know, should it be understood as a scholarly monograph or as literary nonfiction? You know, of course, it's all of the above. Um, but... What's interesting about life is not useful as a text is that these are a collection of live streamed talks that were then transcribed and then translated. So there are already multiple layers of translation at play. Um, you know, before you, you before you read the English language rendition, you know, I think it's it's important to recognize that there are so many layers of translation that went into this from the live stream talk to the transcription, to the translation. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, then I, I think it's also important to acknowledge Hita Carelli's work, you know, in compiling the essays, editing them. I hope that Ayuton's eloquent tone shows in the translation. He's a very uh, powerful public speaker And uh, what you were saying about performance and orality writing, Takeshi, also makes me think about how indigenous conceptual frameworks encourage us to uh, expand our perception of what writing is as well. So if we think about concepts like kene, that in Panoan languages could be understood either as drawing or as writing. Uh, if you think about the petroglyphs that you can find uh, in Baniwa uh, territories in uh, the Northwest of the Amazon, well, there, there is so much that could be said about what constitutes writing and what constitutes you know, uh, speech. Uh, so we could go on and on.
1: Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, perhaps maybe I should uh, bring it back to the beginning. Um, how did you come up with this work, the focus on the Krenak people and Alton? Is it because of his individual talent as a public speaker and his position as very important in the, in the context of Indigenous studies? Or uh, did you have any other... Um, Maybe my question would be like, what would be the best way to actually situate them in the context of, of Brazil? Because I think most people don't even know different groups and different people, uh, first of all. And how should we um, situate them? And how did you get involved with this specific group? And, or what you find them to be unique and beautiful uh, in in your own way?
2: The first thing that could be said about Ailton Krenak's role in the Brazilian public sphere is that he played a very uh, well prominent role in the late 70s, mid 80s, so, all the path, the coalition that led to the 1988 constitution and the inclusion of indigenous rights in the constitution of Brazil. So at that very moment, he was already a major uh, figure. Um, And then he is someone that is very much respected by the younger generations of indigenous artists and thinkers in Brazil. Alongside Davi Kopenawa, he's arguably the most prominent uh, indigenous thinker, and and that's the the most widely read one in Brazil. And uh, so he's very influential. And what happened during the pandemic was that he started to participate in a number of live streamings that became more and more widely seen. And he became the sort of uh, guru uh, that people were uh, listening to and, and trying to get a sense of what was happening. Uh, and and then, and this is the first time an indigenous person is uh, so widely read in Brazil. He sold more than 60,000 copies of his book. And then Ailton Krenak, became a, a best-selling author. And that's huge. And when he speaks on behalf of indigenous peoples, he's not only speaking on behalf of the Krenak. So his discourse also in, involves examples, anecdotes, conversations that he has had with other uh, indigenous leaders, with uh, other indigenous interlocutors. So he's not So this is not just a book, uh, of course, on Krenak thought. This is Ayuton's thinking. This is the thinking of an indigenous uh, intellectual uh, that's also in dialogue with Chavanti interlocutors and with, uh, as those of you who have already read Life is Not Useful will also remember that he mentions examples from the Ainu, from uh, indigenous peoples from all Other parts of the world. So this is, in a way, his strategy to build transnational uh, transnational pan-Indigenous conversations.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just just to build on that, um. Jamili and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. Part of the way we see this in Life is Not Useful is not just anecdotally, but also citationally. So the politics of citation, you know, are very overt in that sense of giving voice to varying indigenous groups. Um, But he's and he's also citing, you know, Western philosophy alongside that um so there's this kind of extraordinary mosaic of citations um in which the book you know the the thinking vocalizes and brings together um multiple different like forms of knowledge and epistemology forms of life um, asking us to, you know, de-hierarchize, so to speak. And, and this was your word yesterday, Jamili, which I thought was so apt in terms of, you know, what it looks and sounds like um, on the page to be de that I can't even say the word now. Dehierarchizing hierarchizing um, forms of knowledge.
1: You're right that this book refers to so many contemporary issues. Um, You know, he's addressing to the people going through this pandemic and and, and lockdown, and he's been questioning this concept of what is normal, that when we go back to the normal and what we had before this pandemic lockdown wasn't normal, and then normal argument was that it's impossible for us to stop and think about what we're doing. Uh, We have to continue doing what we are doing Uh, And then he's referring to the fact that we we were actually able to stop and we're always capable of critically thinking about the environment and critically thinking about our relationship with each other. He has so many things to say, Um, environmental issues, educational issues, uh, human rights, um, just to name a few. What would you start? like If you are going to start his philosophy, where should we... (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's such an explosive question, but what would you uh, tell students or people who n- know nothing about this topic, where should we start with this book?
2: So we should start, I would say, by saying that Life is Not Useful is a critique of human exceptionalism, that it is a critique of anthropocentrism and, uh, of course, consumption and utilitarian approaches to to life. That's one one way of thinking about it. It's also a book that uh, tells us a lot about the moment of the COVID-19 pandemic, and it tells us a lot about Brazil in the moment of Bolsonaro's administration. And uh, in that sense, it's thinking about those two you know, context in conjunction, the pandemic and Jair Bolsonaro's administration, there is the issue of necropolitics and uh, the lives that count as valuable and the, the lives that count as disposable. And what does humanity mean? And I think that what Ailton Krenak does is to give us an opportunity to rethink uh, humanity, to rethink uh Humanism uh, at large.
0: Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And you know, when Jamili came to um to Kenyan to visit to talk about the book, we were teaching, you know, we taught a small excerpt of Life is Not Useful to My Undergraduates. These are, you know, freshmen and sophomores, 19, 20 years old. And one of the one of the phrases that the students really gravitated toward was the phrase being in constellation with. Um, which I really love how Ayultan mobilizes and deploys this, this phrase, because, you know, we talk about being in conversation, we talk about being in community, but I think to, to be in constellation really expands the frame of reference through which we understand our interdependence and interconnectedness not only to each other, um, but to the earth as a living organism, to the world and to, you know, the world's beyond an anthropocentric framework.
2: No, and just building on that, uh, this image of being constellation, which is so gorgeous, makes me think about interconnectedness, and interconnectedness as a given. Uh, and for instance, he gives us a, a clear example of that being in constellation when he talks about, you know, when someone has a severe case of COVID, electrical power is required. So someone who Needs a uh, you know uh, a respirator uh, to breathe to survive needs electricity and electricity has to do with uh, well hydroelectric dams nuclear power he mentions that and those are contributing to the exhaustion of the planet so COVID and the question of energy are connected and that is connected to how the earth is exhausted.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's this moment in the chapter, Tomorrow Is Not For Sale, um, where Ayulten writes, quote, you either produce the conditions to survive or you produce the conditions that cause your death. And, you know, I think the Life Is Not Useful shows that these these terms of production, these conditions of production are not mutually exclusive. In fact, sometimes the conditions produced for survival are also the conditions, um, that produce death. Um, and this is part of being in constellation and being interdependent in, in a capitalist world, so to
1: mm-hmm. speak. This is just, um, amazing translations and amazing text to begin with. But, um, Life is not useful you know life is not uh, tomorrow is not for sale and life is not useful both of them are very strong critique of capitalism and contemporary politics and also our all of us are actually academics uh, educational <laughs> model so he talks about certification quantifications and also we tend to script right that if you take philosophy classes you learn the critical thinking skills so that you can become a lawyers or doctors and you become successful in the society he said, this is a, you know, quote, bullshit, <laughs> right? That he uses very strong language to say, we really need to rethink this way of educating. And also we are facing this a kind of crisis with the chat GBT because we've been telling students to write in a certain way. And now artificial intelligence is doing better than, you know, like when maybe one third of the students just learn how to actually signpost arguments and, you know, st- structure it writings in a certain way and then you have Alton come in goes like you need to let go of these certifications and, and quantified concepts of education my questions to you both to you both is how do we integrate this into our classroom setting or setting in which we present ourselves as educator like how do we reconcile with this massive educational system that built on capitalistic, industrial, non-constellational education to Krenak way?
0: I mean, what a question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess maybe how do you emotionally and intellectually process this as Mm -hmm. an intellectual? I think that's more of a better way to ask this question.
2: Maybe we could start by saying that it sometimes feels like a paradox to be working uh, in new liberal academia and academia that is also a machine of producing exhaustion uh, for b- both you know uh, in, in, in the whole spectrum and, uh, and this is not limited to p- people who are part of the teaching staff, this is not limited to students. It's a more structural and systemic problem that's not limited to a single university either. Uh, Well, and then Ayuton is addressing the problem of exhaustion too. And and many of the people that I am uh, in conversation with in academia feel exhausted, feel, feel tired, um, and are struggling with, um, well, trying to get a permanent position and trying to fit, uh, you, trying to find a place in this uh, perca- precarious, uh, problematic structure. And he is very critical about the university as a universalizing model uh, as well, and he has given different talks about about that. Uh, there is another text, a uh, book chapter that Alex translated uh, some years ago, that addresses that issue more specifically. Uh, how the reduction of, well, this this loss in epistemic uh, diversity that universities in, end up producing should also be addressed critically. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that part, I, I'm not very sure about it because... Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it is it's, something it's,
1: that almost like all academics are struggling in one way or another, and he's clearly diagnosing this problem that we're feeling every day as academics, for sure. Yeah. Do you have something to add, Jamil? Please.
2: No, I. Uh, no, it's. I think uh, it's a challenge for all of us uh, mm-hmm. how to be uh, anti-capitalist in a capitalist system, and how to, uh, you know, stay with these problems, doing the work uh, within the belly of the monster, of the capitalist monster. Um, and
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's precisely it. And I think, you know, you already gestured at this and what you were saying, Jamili, but like part of, you know the capitalist machine is that, you know, like neoliberalism so easily co-ops and appropriates, um, you know, any, any effort at, you know, decolonization or anti-colonialism that we might bring into the classroom is so easily co-opted. So I think like the way you articulated it is perfect that, you know, it's a question of what it, what it means to perform anti-capitalism from within the machine. Um, And like, I'll just add, like, at at the level of pedagogy, you know, folks talk about decolonizing the syllabus, decolonizing the curriculum. And yes, certainly that that is one step. But just as important is the instructional methodology, like what happens in the classroom. Like for me, it's not enough just to put, you know. Krenak on your syllabus. It's about how it's taught, right? It's about how his work is introduced and contextualized historically and culturally um, and linguistically. And, you know, as translators, I think that that's that's work that we're very, you know, committed to doing um, is thinking across languages, cultures, borders, and you know, doing that kind of decolonial work in the classroom is as much a matter of how the work is taught as it is of, you know, just putting something on a syllabus.
1: I think the the appropriation that you mentioned is really underlying issues of this capitalistic system. Um, even an opening essay talks about how the Brazilian government came up with this idea of, um, you know, the end of discriminations that all the indigenous people is being assimilated into the society for the environmental protections, they started to actually de- contribute to deforestation. So there's language that of inclusion, but the further exacerbates these discriminations and even the destruction of that constellation. Um, so he's very critical of any politicians come in and said, oh, I'm going to save this. right? In fact, they were just interested in their own self-interest and they end up serving themselves. Um, how do we from knowing his work, how does he sort of distinguishes between art, that is authentic contribution to the environmental preservations and also the openness to these different constellations of ways of being to the ones that providing counterfeit um, effort to include that, but it's not really doing. So it comes down to the same pedagogy question of if somebody put this life is not useful in the syllabus, And you know, this person is teaching this content to actually promote constellations to somebody who is actually putting and just reappropriate into the language of whatever we've been teaching. And then, you know, we're done with the decolonization project. How do we distinguish between two paths?
2: So kind of resonating with what Alex was just saying, one of my concerns in academia now is the emptying of the idea of did the decolonial or doing decolonial work because, uh, uh, as they were saying, it's not enough to include Ayuton Krenak in the syllabus to, you know, actually decolonize the, the process uh, that takes place in a, in a classroom, which is a political space. Uh, it is a, a space where decolonial practices, uh, you know, uh, should take place. Uh, and I think that uh, Ayoton Krenak gives us concrete examples that are uh, described in a very insightful way, such as, for example, the space race that people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, well, billionaires, are carrying out, this idea that the solar system should be colonized because we have <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have been, you know, exhausting this planet, as I was saying. So now we have to look for other planets like Mars that should be colonized as well. And this is the same mindset uh, that you know suggests that nature should be turned into a resource uh, and that it is passive, that it should be useful until it is exhausted, right? So I I guess yeah, the space race is one of the examples that he brings that are really insightful.
1: Yeah, his uh, counter argument to the um, Elon Musk is amazing, right? That he said that if we colonize Mars and colonize the the galaxy, we just didn't learn anything from the Earth. (laughs) We just perpetuating the problem uh, into space. And also, of course, Jack Bezos has successfully turned the, the term Amazon from actual uh, Amazonas to this sort of a commodity capitalist construct. That when I talk to the students, I'm talking about the people from Amazon. They they immediately think about people working at the factory. Um, so it's it's something really symbolically we have deconstructed this, you know, natural environment and and, and people. Uh, in Latin America and especially in Brazil, um, so I do feel that this book should be really included in in, in a project of decolonizing uh, curriculum, decolonizing philosophy uh, in general. But one thing I re- I'm really struck me, as something really interesting is his sense of humor. He's really funny, um, like he's uh, you know the uh, analogy about the God created the world. And he was wondering about how the world is doing. So he came back and then you have entire these interactions. And suddenly, you know, the people ask him, like, so how was the people doing? Like, (laughs) so-so, you know, it's just his capacity to kind of diffuse tension and make us makes us hope that maybe things are going to be better. What do you think? Is this his personality or is this something in that? educational program that he grew up with i would like to know this sort of like a sense of humor and a funny part of um this discourse
2: i think it's one of his strategies to confront well western rationality of course but also the hierarchization of forms of knowledge as alex was saying um to unsettle epistemic Homogenization, uh, and I think it's a, a, a very powerful rhetorical, uh, you know, uh, method method that he he uses to engage with his readerships, with his audiences. Since this was usually, this was initially based on uh, talks. Uh, this comes from talks, right? So, yeah, I think this uh, this sense of humor participates in this broader project.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll also just to add to that, I think, you know, in terms of composition, it's really interesting to see the way Ailton builds critiques that are then punctuated with anecdotes that deliver, you know, these humorous twists that I actually think like the way the humor punctuates critique actually deepens um, and textures the way the critique is being delivered. Um, And I think rhetorically, it's a, it's a super potent strategy. And for me, the, the anecdote that you just told Takeshi, the one about, you know, like God returning as an anteater and people, you know, ask, and, you know, what do you think of your human creatures? And God says, so, so like, it's, it's one of those, the most poignant moments in the text, I think that really, um, you know, there's a kind of memorability um, that, you know, it brings us back to the title, life is not useful. Um, and the kind of anti anthropocentric, anti-utilitarian, um, critique being leveraged here.
1: Did you struggle with any, maybe because of this translation, um, and you, you talked about this layer of communication from him performing in the site to transcribed into Portuguese, I believe, and then into English. But when you translating into English did you struggle with any terms of expressions that are very difficult to make it accessible to readers in English
0: Oh my god there are so many where do we need- <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Right um so I have I have two favorites and should really you should chime in um, on these. I think you know like let me give an example of one word in Portuguese that's so deeply polysemic that it points in multiple directions and you know like one of the challenges you face as a translator from any language is like when you have a single word that has multiple meanings, do you want to maintain the kind of repetition of, you know when when you translate it do you want to maintain the rhythmic repetition Or do you want to, you know, honor the multiple meanings, which will eliminate the repetition? So one of one of the words that we struggled with was povo, um, which, you know, it can mean people, it can mean community, it can mean families. um, And this was an episode of choosing to go with a different translation in different contexts based on, you know, how the word povo was being mobilized in the Portuguese and trying to convey um you know the particular um intended meaning in the english um but i think another moment which i was just thinking about this morning which we had quite a bit of back and forth about was the very end of the book um so the the very end um in the chapter life is not useful um and we wound up choosing the word wasteland um which is an interesting choice because the Portuguese is deserto, desert. So, and I'll just read the final few sentences um, of the book. Spoiler alert for all listeners. Um, So Ayulton writes, um, let's see, we, the Krenak, have decided that we are inside the disaster. No one needs to come and get us out of here we are going to cross the wasteland. We are going to cross the wasteland. We have to cross it. Or do you run away every time you see a wasteland? When a wasteland appears, cross it. So the conversation that we had about wasteland was an interesting one because desert In for an Anglophone or an English language audience is immediately going to like conjure up like a kind of biblical, you know, like an Old Testament, you know, crossing the desert. Um, Whereas Wasteland and, you know, one of my personal interests as an academic and as a translator is unintended illusions that emerge in translation. So. Ailton clearly is not thinking about T.S. Eliot, but I'm, as a translator, deeply interested in the way the word wasteland conjures a totally different kind of um, literary history in the English, um, such that you know we suddenly get a new network of texts um, that comes into being when we hear the word wasteland in English. Um, you know, I continue when I read it this morning, I was like, oh, God, should we have gone with desert? Like, anyway, I'll stop there. But I want to I want to turn it back over to, to Jamili to add anything.
2: I no, that's that's a fascinating example of our process, Alex. Um, perhaps I could also say something about the footnotes that we use to provide further context and uh, explanations when they were needed, like the moment in which Ayuton talks about a river being on a coma, or a comatose river, and that has to do with the collapse of mining dams in the state of Minas Gerais in in Brazil, very close to to where he lives. So that happened in 2015 and 2019. And and so that is what he's referring to with a comatose river, A, a river that is full of toxic mud. And then there's this other moment when he talks about this campaign that was on Brazilian television, Agro with Pop. uh, And he is talking about the problem of agribusiness and how agribusiness is to blame for environmental calamity to a great extent. Um, So Brazilians will immediately recognize that he's referring to the Agro with Pop campaign, but people from uh, other contexts might not uh, be aware uh, of that. So that is what justifies the presence of footnotes. Mm
0: -hmm. And I'll just add, we were really grateful and lucky that Polity just, they basically gave us free reign over adding translators notes, which many presses and journals will not. Um, And I think we were so grateful to be able to choose and then add footnotes um, to offer that additional context um, for, for folks who might not be familiar um, with the socio-historical background or with you know the turns of phrase um, that a Brazilian readership would be very familiar with immediately.
1: How did you uh, also pick the cover design? This is one of the most beautiful cover that I've seen. I mean, m- one of my favorite from this year, definitely. Was it also the publisher working with this uh, artist or did you just propose to them to choose this cover? Uh,
2: It was the author's choice. And the cover is by an indigenous uh, artist from the state of Amazonas. That's called the Nilsson Bonua, And this artwork's called There is No Supermarket in the Forest. And this artwork emerged from a... uh, Uh, this conversation that the Nilsson Boniwa had with another Boniwa leader called Bonifacio Boniwa, and they were talking about the demarcation of indigenous lands, and um, and Bonifacio Boniwa was being uh, challenged uh, in the sense that people were saying, well, maybe indigenous lands shouldn't be so big, they it would be okay for them to be smaller than they actually are. And then he said, well, there's no supermarket in the forest. So we, we need space. Uh so that then f- fruit can grow so that we can hunt. Uh so that's that's the idea, that's the rationale behind uh you know how this artwork came into being, and it was the author's
1: choice for this book. It's it's just incredible because the shopping cart is probably the most antithetical to (laughs) this constellation way of thinking about human lives and beings. And this image really is a beautiful forest and a beautiful indigenous person in in, in the front cover. But then you have this shopping cart just sitting right next. And it's just, you know, it it speaks with the title um, so well. And it's really, really well done in in terms of presentation of the cover and as well as content. Maybe last question. a penultimate question before the last question um the task of translations right i'm also involved with the task of translation in the context of asian philosophy and i feel it's incredibly under and i noticed that jamil you, you said the translation i work on the translation but also i work i'm also academic so there's a kind of demarcation between the two do, do, do you find it to be a problematic or um like do, do you still think that there's functional differences between academia and these translations as social activism?
2: I think that the main issue for me is time management, because I love all of those activities, and I would love to translate more, but that is not possible because of other commitments. Uh, well, I'm currently co-translating Ancestral Future, Ayuton Krenak's newest book with Alex Brostov, And I'm also revising Eduardo Kohn's uh, Brazilian translation for his book uh, called How Forests Think, uh, that was published uh, 10 years ago and it's being published in Brazil by Editora 34. So those are my my two activities and those are the publications that are coming
0: up in the near future. Um,
1: Fantastic. I'm very looking forward to them. Yeah, Alex, please.
0: Yeah, I would just love to add a couple of things in response to your question about the worlds of translation and, you know, the the world of translation and the world of academia, because for me, they should be far more closely tied than they are, or they should be in constellation to each other, <laughs> to echo Ailton. Um, I think, you know, I really see translation as a form of creative writing. You know, when you read a translation, every single word was chosen by the translators. Um, and it, you know, we talked about this earlier just to bring the conversation full circle. You know, I think we opened by talking about, um, scholarship or sorry, translation as a form of scholarly activism, um, as a mode of, um, coalition building and anti racist praxis. Um, And so for me, translation should be central to what we do in the university. It should be central to not only decolonizing the curriculum, but decolonizing, you know, instructional methodology in the classroom. Um, Unfortunately, as we know from the history of translation studies, visibility is a massive problem. And it's also, you know, translation in most institutions that I'm aware of does not count for tenure. Um, So it's not recognized the way um, that, you know, publishing a single author, peer-reviewed article or a scholarly monograph is, or even, you know, publishing a book of poetry. Um, Translation is still to this day, I think, largely understood as a kind of um, mechanical process rather than the art form that it is. Um, And it is a craft. um, And it's a craft that brings us into constellation with each other. Um, Again, to echo Ayultun, and I just, you know, I very much hope that the work that Jamili and I are doing, you know, participates in a broader project of, you know, bringing visibility to translation, um, and to Ailton, and, and, you know, and so many others. Yes, no, that's perfectly put,
2: Alex. And uh, I also think that these crafts, uh, of being a scholar activist and being a translator, they are in constellation, and they are part of this broader, broader project of coalition building, and they are also part of a broader project of diplomacy. And uh, I, I think it's important that we value the craft of translation as critical thinking too.
1: Fantastic. Um, I think the, my frustration with academia sometimes comes up in my questions and you 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 you're definitely seeing this sort of translation as a way to access different ways of thinking you know the decentralize our structure of knowledge and d de- that's a difficult word d de- hierarchy guys <laughs> really de- <laughs> yeah it's a deconstructed yeah. hierarchy of knowledge right um so, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but this is the final question that i like to ask. And perhaps you can actually amplify it or even add more. I'm pretty sure that's not the only things that you're working on, Jamila. Uh, what are you working on right now? And also your future projects. Where do you, would you like to go uh, from here, including the, this book, but also any other projects that you're working on?
0: Okay. All right. I'll start. So Jamili already mentioned that we're we're currently co trading co translating Ayulton's next book, Futuro Ancestral, um, Ancestral Future. So um, we're excited to be continuing our collaboration on that front. Um, I am also. Um, working on several other projects. These are not translation projects, though there are many other translations that I would love to pursue, including, um, I'm very interested in um, Argentine feminist, Maria Moreno's work, and she has a collection of cronicas of, you know, short nonfiction pieces um, called Teoria de la Noche, Theory of the Night. So that's a translation project that one day I would love to pursue. Um, but for now, um, I've just put together um, an edited volume with Velashni Kupan called um, Auto Theories, Transdisciplinary Experiments and Self-Theorizing, um, which is looking at the ways in which auto theory as a kind of um, hybridization of autobiographical life writing and critical theory and philosophy are traveling across disciplines, um, and across borders. Um, so that volume, um, is currently under review. We're hoping it comes out next year. Um, and I'm also working on a special issue right now. Um, or a special issue proposal with RL Goldberg on trans literatures, um, which we hope will be the first, um, peer reviewed special issue, special journal issue to talk, to discuss, um, the periodization pedagogies, um, and genealogies of trans literatures. Um, and we're thinking about trans literature, not, not just in a, in an American U S context, but, trans literatures and translation. Um, And in my own work, my own um, scholarship, I'm very interested in how the trans and translation and the trans and transgender dialogue with each other. Um, So more on that coming soon.
1: Fantastic.
0: So
2: in addition to my own work and scholarship on Amazonian cultural production, indigenous conceptual frameworks, and extractivism. I'm currently planning two art residencies with indigenous artists from Brazil. One of them is with Gustavo Caboco from the Wapichana people, who is joining us in London for a collaboration with the Santo Domingo Center at the British Museum, which is a center that works with artists that critically engage with. Uh, Latin American collections at the British Museum, and uh, I'm also preparing uh, for uh, an arts residency with the new Boniwa, the artist who is responsible for the cover of Life is Not Useful, that's going to happen with uh, a group of Shipibo, Conibo activists and artists in, in Peru in the summer this year, 2023, and... Uh, I keep working with the Center for Latin American Caribbean Studies at the University of London, creating a program of events and activities. And uh, I encourage uh, those who are listening to us right now to follow us on social media. And yes, that's it.
1: Fantastic. I'm definitely coming to the museum myself and and also following uh, Alex's future work. And it feels like a Krenak's wisdom is actually working. Uh, and, and, and you see in the social activism future scholarly works well really uh, good luck for the forthcoming projects and thank you so much for talking to us about your book
0: thank you so much
1: and thank you everyone this was our discussion with Alex Prostov and Jamila Pinero Diaz who are the translators of Alton Krenak's Life is Not Useful see you next time